Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, it's, I'm happy to be here again, but this time I'm talking about something about which I know very little. So let me tell you the background and the genesis of this talk. Um, uh, two years ago, I, I read a bunch of books, basically because my kids told me to read them. And since that's how I got into biology, because I read my daughter's textbook on, on AP Bio textbook, uh, I thought this is a good way to make a segue into the next phase of my life. So I read these books, and, and then I was invited to give a talk in India about, which was titled exactly this, The Selfish Gene. And it was a public talk, and everybody was more interested, of course, in the evolution of cooperative behavior in society and not the evolution of cooperative behavior in bacteria. And if you, if you think about it, really, bacteria don't cooperate in the same sense that we do. So my interest in so there are mechanistic reasons why things happen, and there are there are uh, there are reasons based on logic and inference and analysis, which is hopefully what we do. So my interest is really in the second kind of cooperative behavior between thinking entities, not between reacting bacteria. Okay, so so then I should I should I should tell you that that I'm hoping some of the things I talk about will be discussed in this in this meeting, and we'll see if they are. So what's the purpose of my being here? Uh, this was something that Boris said last summer when I came here for a cancer workshop. He said the purpose of the workshop should be to find an interesting problem to work on from now on. So it should change what you're doing now. So let's see if that happens. And so the questions I hope we address in this workshop are, why are we selfish? And why do we cooperate in the, in the presence of self-interest? And most interesting is cooperation really an, um, an emergent phenomenon, which, which can be influenced and guided. So this is very important in many situations and contexts, such as, and this, this spans many fields, actually. Uh, for example, in, uh, in, in, the, in behavioral psychology or politics, there's a whole bunch of issues about conflict resolution. So can, can what we talk about mathematically inform how we negotiate? And this is, of course, a huge field. And I don't think physicists have made a huge impact in this field, although we are trying to. And I don't think that, that when um, Obama, for example, has to make a decision, he calls a physicist or a biologist and says, what do you think I should do? But perhaps he should. Okay, so let me just give you an example. Why is this relevant? And this is, of course, an old debate that is going to probably remain ongoing forever. So is religion necessary for moral behavior? Or does cooperation emerge in a world of egotists without any central authority? I don't know what you believe. It's not but, necessary. That's sorry? It's not necessary. That's yeah, so Mr. Hobbes, of course, disagreed with you very strongly a long time ago. Um, yeah, people always take extreme positions on this, and that's fine. Um, so he believed that nature is dominated by selfish individuals who compete on ruthless terms. And, and that life is solitary, poor, brutish, nasty, and short. And therefore, cooperation cannot emerge without a central authority because a strong, and, and therefore, not because, therefore a strong government is necessary for moral behavior. 
Well, that's the basis of all religious faith. You need, you need, you need God to tell you how to behave. Otherwise, you would be brutish and selfish. Okay, so let me just do, have some definitions. Well, what's the definition of altruism? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, this is obviously not true to some extent. Yes, of course. I'm going to thank you. I'm just saying this is the genesis of 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 the whole field. Is well, this? I'm just saying, you know, it's scientifically proven that it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hopefully, yes, yeah, yeah. Just because I say something doesn't mean I believe it. Just like you, you said yesterday. There, there are a lot of people who take positions on this, and my view is that we have just <coughs> formalism, and then we see which formalism fits the problem. So we should go by which problem we want to address, rather than insist that some formalism is right or wrong. And he had a, a problem. The problem is, why do we behave morally? And his solution was what he described. But it turns out, I think it's wrong. But there are still people in this world who believe it's right. Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm saying it's it's wrong, obviously, you can prove it wrong. is because you know there are small-scale societies that don't have moral behavior. Yeah. Well, they do have, they have moral cooperation, but they don't have a central authority. But their you know their religions are not like like uh, one of the big world religions. They just have some goals to something. Like yeah. Ancestors and so on, but they these ancestors don't necessarily tell them what to do. They're just there, and maybe they're afraid of them or something. They, they nevertheless cooperate to some extent. Yeah, so cooperation, in my opinion, is an emergent phenomenon. It happens because of self-interest. And you cooperate, I cooperate with you because I'm interested in what you know and what you think right. and what you can do for me. And say, likewise, but, but some people believe that's not sufficient. Right. Okay. So, Are you talking about like reciprocal altruism? Yes, reciprocal altruism. All of these words will appear later on in the talk. I just want to kind of set the stage for what I want to say. Uh, so altruism is behavior which increases somebody else's welfare relative to your own. And selfishness is the opposite, something which increases uh, your welfare at the expense of everybody else. And of course, welfare in the technical sense is chance of survival, or in biology, chance of reproductive success. Okay, so here are some examples. So these are meerkats, and they are sharing babysitting duties. Why would you do that? Because if what you said were true, that there was group dynamics, which is true, of course, people who live close to me, traditionally at least, before the jet age, were probably more related to me. And therefore, it's genes speaking. Uh, Columbus monkeys share food. And if you look at them genetically, they're extremely diverse. And yet they share food. Um, here's a, here a budgigger sharing fruit. And then, of course, there's cooperation across. Uh, this is, he's, he's sharing his food. Are you saying he's cooperating? Well, the dog is cooperating, I think. Well, it's a freeloader. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we, we can, and we can learn from observation what's going on. So what Michael said, yes. I don't know. I don't know who took those pictures. I downloaded them from the web to give you an example of what I want to say. But they could be anywhere. Yeah, they could be at a restaurant. So he, what Michael said yesterday was that we can learn from context. And I think the first you have to define what the problem is, and then you decide what the mechanism is that you use to solve the problem. 
So if you are told of a person who lived and prospered amongst gangsters, we would infer, because of our experience, that he was tough and ruthless and he was probably a nasty person. But he had the ability to survive a very difficult environment. And in this sense, we can deduce somebody's nature from the conditions under which he or she has survived and prospered. So it's, it's important to understand the context in which the problem is posed before one can decide whether you're acting altruistically or selfishly. So now let me just give you the, the, the lore a la Dawkins. And this is one side of the controversy. There's no controversy really, but Dawkins has taken a deliberate extreme position just to inflame people, which sometimes is a good idea. Okay, so he, he, he believes that like successful New York gangsters, our genes have survived for millions of years by competing with each other, and therefore we are survival machines. And I'll go into this in some depth in a little while. Um, and we are created by our genes, basically. And, and therefore the preeminent quality to expect from us, because we inherited it from our genes, is ruthless selfishness. So we all act in our self-interest, and that's all, it, that's all there is. And then there are many examples of self, uh, selfishness, of course. Um, gulls will eat the chicks from surrounding nests when the parents are away. You can see this gull is eating a little chick. Maybe I should sit down so that I don't. And playing mantis will eat the male because he's a protein source once he's finished his business. Uh, penguins in the Antarctic will push other penguins off the, the ice to test whether seals are present. Sometimes they push off their kids before jumping in to feed. How do we know that's a test? No, this is an example of selfishness, not a test. How do we know that the penguins are testing to see if seals are in the water? Oh, because they won't go in if the other penguin is attacked by a seal. But they, will, they will do this when they're not sure. And once they see that nothing is happening, they will go in. So they wait, they, wait, they wait until there is a react. They wait enough to sense whether there is, there is activity down below. Of course, they could mess up and and, and still get killed, but at least that's a test. You push somebody in to see how cold the water is in, in, a, in a swimming pool. They do this when they're not sure. We, so they don't always do this? They don't always do this. If, if seals are already swimming in, inside, they'll just jump in. But the first time they approach um, the edge of the iceberg, they will throw a seal off. They, so they, they, they kind of hover. And then one of them gets thrown off. And they, I've seen movies of this, so I presume that the movies were taken honestly. But this is the interpretation of the movie. Yeah, I'm just trying to distinguish between the observation and the interpretation. Yeah. I know why I pushed someone into a swimming pool, but I have no idea what a penguin thinks. And I'll never be able to know. I'll just be Possibly. able to observe what it does. But it looks selfish. It could be altruistic. Although we project our own motivations. Absolutely. The yes, yes. So we have, so the context in which we interpret things has to be our, unfortunately limited by our own experience. So we can, we can say we, we cannot make any judgment on this at all. But if you want to use an example to, to make a, a story, then we have to use our own judgment to make the example. So I agree with you. Okay, so however, what the selfish gene does not tell us, so, so not always can you interpret something. Can I ask a question? Yeah. I'm never, I've been lucky enough never to have to grant tokens. Um, but so his I argument see. is because genes, is, so what's the, the link between the biology and the sociology? Yeah, so I'm... Because the genes are supposed, 
right? Self-interest, progeny, etc., etc. Therefore, we have a psychological right, that manifests itself as a as a psychological. You'll see, he's just trying to draw a, a, a connection between genes and behavior. But as I recall, he doesn't explicitly make that Yeah, statement. he doesn't make that statement. Because genes behave in these patterns, therefore we psychologically behave in a certain way. He doesn't explicitly make that, but that's how it's been interpreted. I think he explicitly says that he doesn't make that statement. Yeah. And he spent the rest of his life trying to do exactly this, that is say, that's not what I said. I didn't. So that's exactly what I'm trying so to say. What did he say? Did he just? He said that, ge that genes are selfish. Oh, okay. He said genes are selfish. They had to be selfish to survive. And the fact that they have survived means that their selfishness worked. And I'll give you the the okay. chronology of what he says in a in a minute, and you'll see. So what he it does not mean is that morality is or should be based on what our genes do. Right. And. Genetics and evolutionary theory do not say how humans ought to behave. And and, and in, in bottom line is one should distinguish between what is, is the truth and what we wish to believe should be the truth. So you're interpreting the truth to, to judge behavior. It's not, genes are selfish, we can prove this. There are specific genes which increase the size of the baby um, at the cost of the mother and these genes are clearly paternally imprinted. Um, so they, they are selfish. They want to propagate themselves regardless of cost. But are you not just restating Darwin? I'm confused. I mean, you just no, not restating. So, so is there any connection between between genes and our behavior? This is the question. Right. That, okay. And it's not clear that there is, but in some sense there is. Because we do choose partners a certain way. You, you, you do not choose to mate with a hippopotamus because it's unlikely that your genes will survive. Uh, but also, you do not do not choose to mate with your own with your own um, siblings because it's not good for this. It's unlikely that you. It's likely that you will produce genetic anomalies. More likely. But the point is, cooperation is in the best interest of the genes, also, and so right. there's no logical connection between selfish individuals. Yeah. So that's yeah. So I, I'm I'm coming to exactly that. And so, so morality is one choice amongst behavioral phenotypes. And there are other choices. You don't choose morality always. If you choose morality always, you're probably going to be in trouble. So uh, you're, you're using morality and altruism interchangeably here? Yes. Moral behavior is behavior that, let's say, is acceptable to the group. Altruism, we're trained somehow to think in group dynamics because of a, of a certain hierarchy of family structure. I just want to understand how you're using yeah. the words. Because earlier you defined altruism as incurring cost. Yes, morality also incurs cost. You have to forego certain things Not that you would rather do. Might be, I mean, yeah. You have to quantify cost. So it's difficult to define. Um, I'm just trying to understand how you're using these words here. So yeah. you're using them interchangeably. Yeah. OK, so there are examples of altruism. Uh, worker bees, when they sting uh, people who steal honey, they die, and basically they are, they are dying to for the nest to survive. Birds will will perform a display, distraction display when the predator comes. Yes. What do you call the choice in biology? Because uh, this bee, if she's uh, beating uh, someone, yeah, it's like it, it is uh, like a reaction. 
So it, uh, it can be uh, described like a inverse response uh, instinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it has no choice. It's it's not choice driven. I'll show you. I'll show you an example of when you make you know how how genes are actually manipulating the system, one gene at a time. The behavior is predicated at the level of genes in a complicated way, which sometimes you can analyze at a single gene level. So I'm going to give you an example of that. But your example of B is correct because the B has no reproductive capacity, and therefore there is no cost to the B stinging. No, it's again an interpretation based on what I think altruism is. Okay, so in that context, there is no cost. It's free. So it's not an altruistic behavior. But it's a behavior that is learned, behavior that is that is programmed, and behavior that seems so. So self-preservation. If you if you believe altruism is something which preserves self, then it is altruistic. If you believe that it's the gene that's pushing you to do it. Then it's just a mechanistic thing that the gene is imposed on the Evolution is about fitness, not about necessarily individual survival. So this increases the fitness of the gene. It's a behavior that increases the fitness of, yeah. the, of the organism, yes. Whether you want to say it's genetic is another question, but certainly behaviorally it's, it's adapted. Right. Yeah, so as we can see... But it's we can not altruistic in the sense that there's no cost to the individual. You started out by saying altruism was defined by having cost to the individual. This individual is dead. But if the individual has no has no potential reproductive success, then there is no cost associated with the death of that individual. But it's not clear that this is an individual. This is a piece of, of a of, of, of a hive and in some sense it's like a limb. That's and you've exactly lost the limb. Worse in this case. Point exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the the definition of altruism, which I'm making, is kind of extremely loose. Okay, that's that's. I mean, I was just following up on, on Cassandra's point that, okay. that you're using altruism in, a, in in morality in a variety of ways. Yeah. And it's tricky. I mean, it's hard enough to understand it when you have a fixed definition. When you let the definition slide, it gets even more complicated. That's fine. That's all. Yeah. Agreed. But this one is altruistic because it could get killed. And then its nestling would get killed as well, most likely. So there are, okay. And of course, um, you also evolved, nature has evolved mimicry and deceit, for example. Here's a leaf frog mimicking uh, a leaf. And, and here's a dead leaf mantis that looks like a leaf. And the anglerfish has a lure which it uses. So, so evolution has created these wonderful cheats, if you can call them, uh, mimic fish, eucalyptus leaf insect, which you can see over there. Um, this is a this is an orchid that has evolved like a bee. You can't see it? You can see it. It's right here. It's the one that's got the little antennae. The point is you can almost not see it. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to Montreal, there's the insect zoo. You can handle those things. Okay, so um, all of these behavioral, so so the the other side of the of the of the, of, the, of the fence is the, uh, the the group altruism, the idea of group altruism, uh, which it's not clear whether it's a fallacy or not, but it's certainly a dogma for some people. And the dogma is based on the following: that animals spend a lot of time and energy in nurture and reproduction. And 
therefore, they are uh, doing what is called what is good for the species. But in some sense, this the um, this is actually you know altruism is a consequence and not the motivation for reproduction. The motivation for reproduction is self-projection, and so you have actually exchanged cause and effect. And, but of course, if you go by this logic, then a little stretch of the logic then says that the function of reproduction is to actually perpetuate the species rather than the individual. And this is how, this is the genesis of group altruism, or the idea that group altruism exists, and therefore it's what we are trying to promote is not us, but the group. And, and of course, the, the final error is to conclude that animals behave so as to perpetuate the species. And there is a proof in Gethi that that's not true, that in fact um, altruism is an emergent <coughs> phenomenon. And the reason is that in a group of altruists, there's always a minority who will refuse to make sacrifices, and Michael gave examples of this yesterday. And they will have better reproductive success because they will use less resources at the cost of the people who are doing the work. And their progeny will inherit these selfish genes and will proliferate because the cost to them is lower. So after if you have only a bunch of altruists, then there's always someone. Are you saying it is a gene that codes for selfishness or altruism? No, no, no. I'm saying if if there is a, a behavioral, um, a set of genes that ch causes behavioral changes that makes you not altruistic, then those will proliferate. In the short term. In, a, in the short term. And so it's not just one or the other. It's so so. Making a moral judgment of whether altruism is good or, or selfishness is good, it's, it's a game, and the game is fluid, and, and you can go back and forth depending on. Yeah. The utility of selfishness is very high in a group of altruists. Right. It's almost impossible to eliminate completely. Yeah. It's not an evolutionarily stable strategy because it's perturbed uh, immediately, it, it, it's unstable to perturbation by a group of selfish people. You keep using the word gene, and in some sense this gene is, is appropriate if you're actually talking about DNA. But you don't need to talk, you, you can avoid all these issues about our behaviors to genetically determine and so on by simply saying that there is a behavioral trait which has some heritability. Mm -hmm. And you can modify that degree of heritability as correlation function. And I that that makes no assumption whatsoever about the mechanism of inheritance. Agreed. It could be behavioral, it could be learned, it could be anything. As long as you know what that correlation function is and what the degree of variance is, then you can do all the mathematics. It makes no difference whether the behavior comes from a gene, from something epigenetic, or from something else. And so the, the argument about whether uh, things are genetically determined or not is a strong man. All that matters is whether there is a correlation between parent and offspring in some behavior and what the correlations are. Yeah, no, agreed. Okay, so, so the, but the dogma persists because it's easy to sell. It's easier to sell than the dogma that we are selfish because uh, people who, are, who do not want to analyze the situation and it's in tune with what we are taught in school and what we are taught at home that we should, we should forego our own happiness for the happiness of others. And however, it, it is true that we are altruistic within a group, 
but selfish between groups. Otherwise, there would be no wars. So there is there is always an interplay, even in 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 these larger contexts. And and so we, I want to get away from this business of whether you're cooperating or or not. But there are underlying causes of, and this would be how altruism or cooperative behavior would emerge. Uh, so one aspect could be gene survival, and I will give a, a just so story from biology, which is what Dawkins presents as proof that, in fact, the selfish gene will lead to cooperative behavior. Um, and, and that is manifested through kinship recognition and reciprocal benefit um, through kinship recognition, uh, whose motivation is gene survival. And of course, the other underlying cause of altruism, going back to Hobbes, is the expectation of either a reward or punishment. It causes you not to go berserk, uh, except under the influence of substances. And of course, nurture. <coughs> nurture is you're, you're trained, and you, you kind of use somebody as a role model, and then pretty soon, you, this is what you know how to behave, especially if you're successful. And of course, culture, language, heritage, religion, and tradition play a role in all of this too. And then there's imprinting, you know, what you're taught in school. So for example, physicists always like to, re I, I'm a physicist, so I can say bad things about physicists, that they like to reduce things to simple things, and they nitpick about everything, and they want to write an equation, whereas biologists instinctively avoid equations. They don't like them, because they would like to tell a story. Can I yeah. comment? Don't you think that the last three uh, arguments are basically moving the problem to the previous generation, so they're not really an explanation. They're just, just saying you do it because the previous generation does it. So but it, people do behave this way, right? They say, I go to church because my parents took me there. Or yeah, I go but to the temple. it's a satisfactory cause because essentially you're just saying, I mean, you can just move the question to your parents, essentially, right? But you, you, so it's a learned behavior, isn't it? It's a behavior of learned. And in some sense, it's selfish because it propagates. You know that it propagated your parents to you, and therefore, by doing this behavior, you're just. But then you can ask why your parents did it, and then and then go back. Oh yeah, so so it's a bit. Uh, Sorry, this is how induction proof, inductive proofs works. But then you have to do it through zero. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you have to prove. Yeah, no. it goes to the first step. yeah. So so at, at at zero, there was some person who said, "You will do this." Yeah, And that was it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But is there a correlation between learning behaviors and genetic structures? I'm going to yeah, I'm going to try to argue that there is. Just a second. Okay, so so I'm going to give you this just so story, which is that I think so. This is a, of course not mine. This is from whatever I could glean from Dawkins' uh, book and subsequent explanations for what he didn't say in the book, and that that cooperation is is is, is clearly an emergent phenomena. But let's go back to how life originated to understand how this might happen in the context of selfish uh, objects, which are purely chemical interactions. How could they have evolved into cooperative behavior? So the original life form was, this is just one possible way the thing happened. And it could be that DNA came before RNA. But just for argument, let's assume RNA came before DNA, and it, that, that there was a replicator which could just make a copy of itself. And then, of course, over time, because of errors in copying, many types and numbers of replicators evolved. There's a whole um, industry now, actually, which models such things. 
and, and, and tries to understand how life might have emerged and how long it would have taken. Um, and, and of course, resources are finite, so there is competition, there is selection going on. And so it, th there was probably a large variety of replicators uh, with a variety of fitnesses. And the replicators, of course, are, are programmed to make copies of themselves with error. So all of the players that we use in analyzing such situations were at hand. Uh, and your fitness depended on how long you lived, because that told you how, how many copies you could make of yourself, how fecund you were, how quickly you could copy yourself the accuracy with which you could copy yourself, and whether you could find some substrate or whether you could find resources to make a copy of yourself. And here's, here's the model. That, you, know, you have this replicator. He finds resources. He makes a copy of himself or herself. Of course, this is itself. And then a second round of growth happens, and now you have two copies where there was one. OK, so then. So presumably, the primeval soup consisted of stable varieties of replicator molecules. And I'm not sure whether we can call them alive, but they were certainly interacting. And they competed, just like species now. And they were simple. So we, we, we cannot use them necessarily to explain moral behavior, but we can certainly analyze them to understand what might have happened. Almost certainly, there were predator replicators who who would basically break down others and use the resources for their own replication. And so some of them might have built enclosures or cell walls to protect themselves. And these, these replicators that were inside the cell became more complex because they had long time in which they were not being attacked or broken down. And over time, they might have evolved methods to store DNA. This is, of course, a just-so story. right? So. It, it, it's just, you don't have to buy this, but it just take it as a story. And so, so far there's data for which one of these steps. I know that non-enzymatic replication of nucleic acid can, can happen several times. Yeah. Any of the other steps have no. emerged? Nobody, except in the computer. Yeah, no, I mean in a... And DNA, why DNA was invented, nobody has a clue. I mean, why precisely the DNA we have, nobody has a clue. It is more stable. It is more stable, so that's all. And within the cell, cell wall, so, so perhaps replicators, the, the RNA could make protein, which made the cell wall, and within the cell, they had, they had a limited size genome because the error rate would, would be too high. Control. But nobody has synthesized this. Nobody has done this experiment in the lab that proves any of this. Lipids, membranes, have, been, have people been able to? No, people haven't been able to make out of RNA. So, so there could have been another, a precursor to the ribosome but it doesn't exist anymore. I should point out for people who will be here, Irene Chen uh, will speak to us at some point in yeah. the program about her work yeah, on the uh, show stack on this. Okay. So, but think of this just as a, as a progression, as a story which kind of makes sense because we know the end, end result. It could have gone a different way, but this is what you could, you could at least try to test it by identifying the stages that, along which it might have happened. And presumably, so these, these things then eventually invented ways of increasing their survival and eliminating rivals. And one way to do that is to, is to increase complexity and create what uh, Dawkins calls survival machines, us, 
to live in. And okay, in these survival machines, once the DNA and the gene the genetic setup is, is in place, such of genes could regulate different functions. And, and this program is set upon fertilization. It's tissue-specific, as we know. It is regulated and can be globally modified. It is inherited when cells replicate. Some of the genes are imprinted in the sense that they are actually promoting their own welfare. Uh, there are interference genes and killer genes. We know this to be true. So we can see some evidence of, of this, this selfish progression uh, in the remnants of, of, of this, this type. And then one could ask, well, what are the genes' priorities? Well, the highest priority would be survival and reproduction, if this story were true. And, and genes would have to cooperate to achieve these ends because they have now enclosed themselves in these survival machines and they cannot survive unless they can manipulate the outside world for achieving these ends. So they would have to find and catch or gather food, avoid being caught and eaten, avoid diseases and accidents, protect themselves from the environment, and survive. Okay, so over time, survival machines evolved brains which, in some sense, are, yes? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to be bumpy and, okay. and, and say, like, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a good story. story. Yeah, but why are you telling us this story? Because you do so much more than just some story. Okay, I, you'll see. Okay. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. So yesterday there was a whole discussion about why game theory in this context is useful at all. No, I think it was quite the null hypothesis that is not useful. You have to show me why it is useful. Yeah, yeah. it's the same thing. Right, so I, I'm leading up to you that if, if you have a complex system like this, which you need to, to explain or need to understand, then you need some framework in which to explain it. And game theory provides a framework. So I'm going to come to game theory next, hopefully. I mean, I'm going to do this because this is my process of learning. Uh, so I'm showing this to you. Maybe it's of, meaning, of no meaning to you, but this is how I learned this, this thing and, and, you know. Yeah, I love you, so I want to know where you're going with it. Yeah, yeah, okay, so let's see. So survival machines who learned by trial and error got hurt. So, you know, just think of this as a story. Think of I'm your grandfather or somebody telling me. <laughs> <laughs> just listen to the story. You can take a walk and come back. <laughs> no, I want to know why. Okay. So those who learn by trial and error get hurt. Um, so we, we, we actually simulate the world. We, we interpret the world. And our decisions are based on our memory of what happened the last time we, we, we performed an action. And so, so survival machines who process data and simulate the world better anticipate by anticipating danger are fitter. Um, and over time, these survival machines took, uh, were, were taken over by their simulating brains. Okay, so, so one definition of consciousness might be, so I, I want to go from the genes all the way up and then you can tear it all down and say this is all nonsense. So when did consciousness appear? So consciousness may have appeared when the simulation included a model for itself. That who am I? Once the, the question of what, what is it that I am, that context appears. And, and this is, of course, uh, many psychologists believe that this is exactly how a child relax, re relates to the world after six months. Before that, the child is not aware of, of its identity. But after six months, the child suddenly realizes that there is a model that works, which is that if I think of the world as doing things to me, with me as an entity. Before that, it's just processing sensory input. After that, it says there is such a thing as I, 
and that makes the model extremely simple. And maybe that's what consciousness is. Yeah. Is the consciousness related to the choice? No, you have no choice because it's it's a model that is so prevalent and a model that's enforced by the environment that you have no choice. You will choose to become an entity because everybody expects you to become one. Every reacts to you, and it's so. For example, you as a child, it's it's well known that if you if you uh, take you experiment to a child who's very young, and you show them something, you take it away. And then, with, so you, you put you, you put two handkerchiefs and you, you put something under a handkerchief and you, the child enjoys looking at it. So you, op you, you, you open it and sees the thing and then it's very happy. And then you cover it and then it sees it and it's very happy because it's seeing it again. But then, if you, if you take it away without the child noticing it and ask it where it is, even though it can see that it's not there, it will look under the thing and be surprised that it's not there. So it hasn't really figured out permanence of things. It doesn't see, think of, of things as permanent objects. When the parent comes into the room, the child doesn't know it's the same parent. Over time, it, it, so it doesn't have a sense of entities. It has a sense of action and things happening, and you know, it reacts with its senses. But the senses are not co coordinated to understand units are, are, are present around. And certainly it doesn't know that it is a unit until later on, when it says, well, if I, if I assume that it, I am a unit, then it, everything makes perfect sense. Because then you're a unit, I'm a unit, and you're doing things to me. And if I do good things to you, then you do good things to me. So in some sense, morality is an interpretation, could be an interpretation of, of the world, which allows us to function in it, based on this whole sequence of events. If you believe the sequence of events, then morality could be an, an acquired uh, model that allows us to function. Okay, so anyway, to finish the story, over millions of years, four, four billion years, these survival machines became sufficiently elaborate and diverse, and replicators became immortal, swarming in large robots and manipulating us. And we communicate. So this is this is Dawkins's. This whole his, his, so so now he has he has gone from so it's it's a non-trivial sequence of things. We started out selfish, and now to interpret the world and survive, we have had to 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 communicate and cooperate. So um, I I don't think I, I don't know if you think this is a big deal, but I think this is for me it was a great revelation that this emergence actually explains the whole hierarchy from selfish behavior all the way to cooperative behavior. If this is indeed what happened, then it's it's a wonderful thing that it happened this way. And we can argue about the semantics. Where is the conundrum here about? There is no conundrum. So now it's gone away, but where has it gone away? Well, it's gone away because we, we believe. So once, so the problem, problem is, once you believe that you are conscious, once you identify as it with your ego, then the problem is, well, who am I and who guides who is my moral authority? Where do I get my good? So good and evil, you are, um, um, in, so altruistic behavior helps you in certain contexts, and, and you are taught, because you are taught to cooperate, and because it helps to cooperate, you somehow believe that this is, this is special, and this is better. But I mean, so we, humans, you know, very often don't cooperate, for example. Yeah. yeah how, many, how many kids do you have? 
I had two kids. And they cooperate? Yes. <laughs> 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 no, they do. They do. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about the, the experiment with the handkerchief and the pants coming in, mm -hmm. I was thinking about dogs because they're always, you know, often very happy when they see you, even though you, you know, saw them 15 minutes ago. And they have probably quite complicated brains. Yeah. Or, you know, other animals too. So, do they have morality, do you think? Probably. Well, morality in what sense? In, like, in the sense of... In that sense that it leads to... Well, uh, yeah, a mother dog will fight to save her children. So in that yeah, sense, they have morality. themselves, I mean, but... No. You no, know, more packs and that kind of stuff. I'm sure they have, you know, there's some kind of rules. Yeah. They have a set of social values. They, they, they hunt together. So, for example, somebody will... will, will act as bait while somebody else... So, what, I mean, I just don't understand where suddenly the, the problem of no, cheating I'm, I'm talking about cooperation in this process because you said, you know, suddenly here we have altruism. So where well, cooperation appeared out of the need to, to propagate, right? To, to, to survive. Yeah, but what about cheating? Isn't that, isn't that still there, that problem that you can survive better or have more offspring if you're cheating and then yeah. else is But certainly in evolution, the cheaters have been marginalized. Right? Why? So, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking. You know, yesterday, I was claiming, okay, we, what you need for altruism to to uh, propagate is a sort of something. You know, there must be right. a mechanism for it to, to thrive. Yeah. So, I, I would, so uh, I, I'm missing. Yes. So I agree with you. That, that, <coughs> so by compartmentalizing, we've effectively done what you said, which is that you are a compartment which contains genes of one type. Yeah, so that's maybe within my body, but yeah. how does that make us? But the ones you communicate with are also ones that are similar to you in in some sense, right? So we have we have kind of yeah, but kept one thing is about cooperation among cells in a body, that's a different kind of cooperation than cooperation among humans. But you don't cooperate with a hippopotamus. With with a hippopotamus, so somebody from a different species. Sure you do. Uh, to some extent. What are domesticated animals? I mean, but I don't know what your objection is. To what I it's just it's just the terminology. Altruism, in a mathematical sense, is well defined. We had a nice lecture yesterday about the difference between weak altruism and strong altruism. You're, what you're calling altruism is always strong altruism. Okay. So then you ask the question: When is it? Uh, evolutionarily favorable to, to, to be altruistic? And the answer is going to be always that it's going to be in mixed populations where you have some cooperation and some cheating, if you want to use a, a loaded term. But but there's no, but, but to go from, from, from altruism to morality is, is... If you, okay, that's fine. If you can wait for a few minutes while I, sure. when I give you game theory examples, you'll see that the complexity increases. You can start by adding cheaters and then the cheaters can get superseded eventually. And there are all sorts of complicated behaviors can appear, as you know very well in game theory, from adding little changes here and there. And the cheaters can win, but not always. You have to, you can't be a cheater all the time. Extreme strategies, sim, you know, do not always work. And most of the time, you need a mixed strategy to survive. And I'll show you examples of this. You can just wait for a minute. Right. No, I agree with you. I'm, I just want to. So, uh, okay, so let me, let me finish this and just go back to it. So then, then one could ask, well, once, once there's free will, is the tyranny of the gene over? Now we can, we can do whatever we want, right? Because we are, 
thinking, we can make choices, and we can make choices on our own. Yes. I'm a bit confused. Uh, if I want to summarize your uh, what you said, you, basically you said that you have uh, selfishness, and from uh, this selfishness, uh, all the species uh, evolved, and at some point in this tree, uh, cooperation appears. Co cooperation appears as the need to survive. You need to cooperate to survive because of okay, the, so the so way so the history happened. Okay, and so you, so basically you claim that uh, with selfishness you can emerge uh, complexity. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So so one might one might imagine that we are now free and the genes tyranny is over because there is free will. Um, but it's not true. So let me give you an example how genes control the machines. Um, so honeybee. Gr have honeybee grubs have a disease which is called foul brood. And what happens in this disease, this is foul brood. Uh, so there are, there are hygienic strains where the workers will find the infected grubs, they will uncap the cells and throw the infected grubs out. Susceptible strains won't do this. So it was an experiment where they crossed two strains and got three types. They were either hygienic, which did the right thing. They were non-hygienic, which didn't do anything. And then there was a type that uncapped the cells but didn't throw the grubs out. And so when he uncapped the cells himself, half of the non-hygienic bees crosses through the grubs out. What does that tell you? It tells you that there are two genes that are recessive that are controlling this behavior of cleaning out the, 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 the hive. One gene controls opening the thing, and the other gene controls throwing it out. In the mm -hmm. proportions of? Yeah, the proportions are Mendelian. That? Yes, the proportions are completely Mendelian. Wait, these are crosses between what, hygienic and non-hygienic? Yeah. Okay. So there, there are two genes that control the behavior, and one for capping and one for throwing out the grubs. So if you've got one and not the other, then you are kind of, you will open it, but you won't throw it out. And so clearly, the behavior can, in this case, is directly related to uh, specific genes. Of course, it's not, it's also, it's, it's also true for us. I mean. Right-left symmetry, right, left symmetry, front-back symmetry is completely controlled by the Hox genes. And it's not just true in us, it's true in, in, in many, many species. So the genes are actually controlling us in many ways. Okay, so there is, there is to some degree, there is kin selection and cooperation, which is automatic. And, and um, survival machines can recognize similar survival machines based on visual cues, based on all sorts of things that we do without thinking. Uh, so survival, so this is the math that people usually do when they, when they study genetics. And you can compute things and you can make decisions on how close you are. Of course, you don't make them overtly. You make them without thinking. Um, and there's a whole mathematics that's developed. Um, and in some sense, parental care is kin altruism. And, but we should, we should also care as much for a baby sister or brother as a child. And this is precisely why, as you get older and you have children, you don't take care of your parents as much. Because the, the cost to you is higher, and the benefit, they won't live long enough for you to get the benefit back from them, unless, of course, they are wealthy. And so there are all sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of uh, costs that you weigh when you make decisions on who to support, which, which is precisely kin altruism. But it's also predicated by your own selfishness. You want to survive yourself, 
And so you, you do kill altruism up to a point and then you move on. Well, of course, that's in many cultures, that's not true. In many cultures, all people are very... Taking care of, yeah. yeah. But as I told you yesterday, there is, there is a grandmother effect. Um, and having a grandmother in the house helps children survive. So both parents can go work, or both parents can go forage. And, and grandfathers are just there, you know, for the ride. Um. Well, but you identified something actually fairly important that is worth calling out, which is, and this is something, again, it's too bad Sebastian didn't talk about that yesterday, because that's his really great work, not what he talked about yesterday, uh, is and this is why you have evolution in the first place, I think, which is that you don't, an individual has no idea what I mean, and again, we're using these, these teleological and volitional terms in a very dangerous way. But it, it, you do not know, under any circumstances, what behaviors are actually going to increase your fitness. Yeah. You, however, have certain surrogates which have a rough correlation with fitness. For example, it may be that sacrificing yourself tomorrow will actually increase the fitness of your offspring which is what matters, because fitness isn't a definition of how many offspring you have. It's the long-term number of offspring, longer than the long-term number of offspring by another generation. Mm -hmm. And so you wanting to survive till tomorrow is fundamentally a, a, a surrogate, because that has some correlation, again, with long-term fitness. Right. But, but you, don't have an, you, you don't have information. That's true. About what behaviors are actually going to increase your fitness. And so to say that you do things because it will increase your fitness is, is, is always, almost always, an incorrect statement to make because one does not, in fact, first, it's not, you don't do it because. Because these, you're, that's the, and second, that you don't have the information to make that decision. Right, so you don't need to process the whole thing, but your experience tells you how to process it and make a, make a judgment call, basically, to, but it is still learned behavior based on self-preservation and survival. Well, you don't know whether it's learned or not. It's not so I, I, I would actually strongly support that same. I mean, I think you know this teleological evolutionary kind of narratives or thinking is 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 basically. You know, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but it's basically wrong. Mm -hmm. But there's no there's no purpose anywhere. No, I agree. So, it's just, so basically, I'm, exactly what I want to talk a little bit about later today, but, you know, I mean, all, what we actually have here is a birth-death process, and some units that replicate. They, they don't know, and all you do is, you know, you start at some point, or, you know, I mean, you, you start your observation at some point, at some point in, in time later, you see what's left, and then, you start interpreting and say, well, these guys are now here because they did this stuff that let them have more offspring or survive better. But, but they didn't, you know, there's no intention there. All they did, they have some properties and they get, as you said, correct. But there's that's some true. correlation between parent and offspring, and that's what's happening. It's just a, a dynamical birth that process. And of course, time, right? but you can make short term decisions. I guess I'd like to chime in with uh, the gentleman that just uh, further drive the point. Um, and actually make an attempt at turning it into a mathematical statement. So, you know, I also kind of uh, the wrong way, but at some point you use the 
motivation as uh, 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 a way. And one way of doing this is precisely to take it strictly as a birth death uh, stochastic process and uh, uh, selfish gene. The only issue is, uh, has this gene survived? Right? Okay. So if you want to go forward, it's the question of the gene or its closest relative surviving, or no, its lineage, I should say, uh, surviving at infinity. But uh, that's going forward. What we really want is uh, to understand what we've got now. Right? And uh, that basically says, uh, conditional on the presence of this gene now, you know, conditional on uh, the existence of uh, uh, this mode of behavior, mm -hmm. some mode of behavior that has yeah. survived. What is the highest probability behavior that could be observed? Could have resulted in this. I'm using these words uh, awkwardly. Uh, let, let's uh, make it a little bit more specific. For example, it could be the probability of, you know, secreting a cetera form or it could be a certain recombination rate. Okay. And let's ask, given that there is a recombination process, what is, the, the, what is the maximum likelihood value of recombination parameter? Okay. Is it one or is it very small? Mm. Right? And then uh, it doesn't mean that it's a good thing to recombine. It may go extinct a million years from now or maybe tomorrow, right? Oh, but sure. conditional on the existence today, you can ask, what's the maximum likelihood value of this parameter, right? So completely conditional. What you're saying is that not to interpret it any way at all. It's totally mechanistic. So as far as I'm concerned, altruistic behavior can go extinct. It can, of course. Right. So it doesn't have to be stable. Yeah. It is stable only in the context of other things that affect it. So. So let me give you. I'm going to give you. This is a different question, right? Anyway, this is a distraction. Yeah. Okay. Do 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 other people here believe that altruism could go extinct? Yes. Yeah, sure. And I also agree with attempting as much as we can. I mean, this is just my preference to to frame things in a mechanistic, parameter-based, descriptive way rather than a teleological way. I find that more. Helpful. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's... Okay, well, maybe you like the game theory example. Molecules are not motivated. I agree with that. Because another point of view would be that the altruistic behavior is an inevitable consequence right. of, of, evolution. A certain, of a certain set of, you know, replicator units that have a certain complexity that, right. in fact, it would always appear. Right. And its probability of going extinct would be well, exponentially small. Well, precisely. So inevitable in this language would show up as a probability going to one right. in the limit of something going to infinity. You can live with that, right? Okay. No, I, 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 so but that also mind. allows for possibility that many finite sets sure. will get sure. lost. Okay. But, but so you're also mean, assuming there's only one kind of altruism. And only one, and, and that the, the, the environment that you're... No, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to put the set notation. <laughs> Altruistic behaviors, but, but ultimately, any I mean, even even you have some set of behaviors that are possible in any system. For any, suppose you have some set of replicators. The replicators have some set of behaviors. Given those sets of behaviors, there is some 
if you assume there's a deterministic system or a quasi-deterministic system, you can calculate the number of offspring in a given context of those or those replicators with those behaviors. And then you can do a lineage track of those behaviors. That's it. There isn't anything more than that. And and no, there is more. No. Yes, because if that's one level of a hierarchy where you have these different levels of description, you can have interaction from uh, different levels of the hierarchy. So you can have canalization. Why, why did this, why did that piece of matter move across the table like that? You could explain it in terms of molecular motors that are going up and down filaments in my arm, but the actual simplest explanation is I wanted to make a point so I moved Gentlemen. this object. <laughs> it's, a, it's a description at a very abstract level. At 5 o'clock on Friday. It has nothing uh, to do with molecular uh, motors. There is this tradition, uh, actually uh, postdocs uh, do it. Right? It's uh, postdoc tea, oh, which actually involves whiskey. So, <laughs> well, where, so maybe some of the discussion should happen at 5 o'clock. Well, where is that? Where is that, Boris, just so everyone knows? No, it's in the it's in that little thing about what is it called? The one that overlooks the ocean. Oh, the fishbowl. The fishbowl. What I heard John say was that the morality is an acquired functional model that implied has predictive power based on relative frequencies. That is survival benefit in certain contexts. Right. So I don't think that's truly illogical. I think it's just metaphorical. Well, there are some people who prefer to have more you know, more analytical analysis of everything that I say and, well, they're going to be disappointed. But you're a writer, so you look at things differently. So poets, if I, if I show this, I, if, you, if you show this to a poet, they're very happy with this because this gives context to something they've never understood. If you show this to a mathematician, he's appalled. I'm not, I'm not happy with either of So it depends, on, it depends on your background to some extent. And as a physicist, I've had to unlearn this, but in, the, in biology, there are questions that you can you, you you can describe, and you have to accept the description because the, it's too complicated to always break it down. When you break it down, it becomes trivial. It becomes almost uninteresting to a biologist. So we, we will see. I, I don't want to make value judgments, but let, let me just. I'm very uh, uh, interested in, in this why game theory. So let's. Yeah. So let me give you uh, let, me, let me give you some game theory examples. Um, so, in my opinion, game theory is a framework that helps to organize ideas and interpret data. And so let me show you some game theory applications. For example, game theory applies in these things. Uh, price war between stores, uh, both, both have incentive to cut prices to attract customers, but if both cut prices, then both lose. And so they have to make decisions based on what they do, depending on what the, what the costs are. And so I'll, I'll give specific examples. Two lions sharing a kill, both have incentive not to share, but if they fight, then they both get hurt. And this is exactly the example that you gave yesterday. Uh, you have doves and hawks. And trade barriers between nations, lowering trade barriers will improve trade, but if only one does it, then the other wins, and so the barriers tend to stay. And this is all described in the context of several games that, that were described uh, yesterday in great detail. But I interrupt you, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I, I would just like to point out that if you go back, yeah, no, 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 actually, that, that slide. Um, I mean, there are two, in my opinion, two very different kinds of evolution concern. For example, between one and two. So two is genetic. Yeah. 
but there's also cultural evolution. And, and, and I, I don't know, you haven't really touched on this, but you know, if you look at human societies, let's say between 1500 and now, there probably is not, you know, there's not many generations. So there's probably not much genetic change. No Actually, genetic people, change. you know, many people believe that there's not much genetic change in the last 200,000 years, but let's just say the last 500 years. Yeah. But there is huge cultural changes, yeah. including amounts of cooperation, including changes in, in religions, including technology, of course, that affects cooperation. So, so I think it's important to realize that you know there is a genetic issue about cooperation, but there's also another type of evidence. Absolutely. So if you got the impression that I'm trying to sell the idea that everything is driven by genes, that's absolutely not true. I, I don't. I'm not trying well, to. I just seen that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you, know, you go from these replicators and then to. Oh, yeah. So that was. And then you get the genetic complexity and then you get cooperation. But even once you have this complexity and you keep the genes fixed at that point, let's say, you know, you can you still. A fixed pool of humans, there's still a lot of potential for, for other Absolutely. kinds of change in terms of cooperation and. and Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I, so I, I didn't want. And you know, so the first, the first example here. So maybe that would be a cultural. Evolution. Yes. Nothing to do with genes. I mean, Absolutely. These, no, no, I agree. Store owners are not gonna, you know. Yeah, nothing to do with their own people. Yeah. Their own genetic and, and survival. Alliance is probably genetic change, and the reason that's important is because the correlations, offspring-parent correlations, can be very different in cultural evolution yeah. because you have different kinds of mechanisms of, of transmission mm -hmm. and so on. Sure. So, so in so fact, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly why I'm interested in your second talk because I want to see what you say have to say about number one and number three. Because those are those are more relevant in the context of, of, of what I'm interested in. And I agree that genes have nothing to do, do with this. The, the gene example is just an example to see that the cooperation can can emerge as a phenomenon which is I mean, emergent. You know, you could almost so very simply in a very simplified way, the genes somehow made us have our big brains at some point. For some reason that has to do with you know birth that birth death process. Mm -hmm. But once we have those big brains, a lot of other stuff starts to become possible. Yeah, and, and, and cooperation is now layered on top of that. Absolutely. Okay, so let me let me reiterate some of the things that were talked about yesterday, but in a very simpler context. So the prisoner, the classic prisoner's dilemma was was first um, described in 1950, and the idea is that if you ask, if you have two prisoners, you interrogate them in separate cells, as probably happens in Guantanamo every day. If both confess, then they both go to jail for five years, and let's say the payoff for that is one. If both don't confess, they both get a light sentence, and that's a bigger payoff. But if one confesses and the other one doesn't, then he goes free, but the other one gets a heavy sentence, who's, so the payoff is zero. And so typically it's described in terms of a matrix, and I've drawn the matrix a little bit differently from what was done in the previous lecture. Um, so here I'm, I've colored the, uh, okay, so, so there's rows because this sounds like rows, and this is column because it sounds like columns. <laughs> the column goes along columns. He has two choices. 
either he can confess or not confess, and Rose has two choices, either she can not confess or confess, and these are the payoffs. So this is the payoff for Rose, and this is the payoff for Colin, and likewise here. And this is and this is asymmetric. So what should you do? And so this is the classic prisoner's dilemma, and the problem is that the optimal strategy for Rose is B. And the reason is that Rose, the way Rose looks at it, she says, if Colin does A, then I win if I do B. If Colin does B, I win if I do B. So I should do B. And if you ask Colin, he thinks the same way. She says that, well, if Rose confesses, then I should choose B. If Rose does not confess, then also I should choose B. And so the classic prisoner's dilemma is that they will both choose B, which is bad for both of them, because they could both do better by choosing A. Okay. So this says that rational selfish behavior often has a lower payoff. And sometimes it might be better to cooperate. But how can you convince them that this is what you should do? Because it depends on the action of somebody else. And, and there's a generalized formalism, which you can think of this, where instead of specific numbers, there are some uh, arbitrary numbers here. And you can figure out when a BB is stable. Uh, BB is stable when T greater than R and punishment is greater than sucker's uh, reward. Um, but the details don't really matter. However, what I want to emphasize is that when you, if you play a, the prisoner's dilemma multiple number of times, instead of doing it just once, then things change. So if the number of games is finite and known, then of course both will choose B, always. Because that's, that has the, the, the best long-term payoff for you. But if the number of games is uncertain, then the things will change. If you have an infinite number of games, and this can be analyzed mathematically, you can prove this. So if, if, if P is the probability to play one more game, then it turns out that AA is stable if P is greater than than this ratio, which is half for the choice of parameters that I had. And, but if the end of play is uncertain, then cooperation is the best strategy. So, of course, what, what, what would happen in practice? And, and Robert Axelrod in 1984 tried this out. So he, um, he asked people to submit programs to play prisoner's dilemma 200 times against each other. And and the winning program was tit for tat. You start by choosing A. The rule for tit for tat was you, you start by being nice. You choose A. And in each round, subsequent round, you choose whatever the opponent chose in the previous round. This is the winning strategy against any other strategy. These programs had arbitrarily large memory. You could, do, you could write any complex program that you want, but the decision is you have to choose to do something based on what I do. And I play against all of you, and my score is the average overall score. Based on more than the previous move, based on entire history. Yeah, I know the history. I know the history. Okay. So the programs could analyze the whole history to decide what to do next. Yeah, they could have time history of whatever you did. But it starts out from scratch. Right? You start out, the first move is up to you. Do they have history of the other yes. players yeah. before they started playing? No. No, you play. No, no. Only when you're playing. That's right. So when you play, you know, learn the history as you play, and you learn what the person is doing, and then you play. And you play the next person. Yeah. And you, and they but they had a tape, which could be potentially 199 sure. long. Steps long. Yes. And, and so at the end of this context, the contest, he told 
the same programmers. He, he said, I'm going to do another contest next year. And this one, and, and I'm telling you that last time, tit for tat won. So one goal might be, you should try to beat tit for tat. Nobody could beat tit for tat. Repeat, and this time there were 62 programmers. And of course, this, this, in the beginning, it was only computer scientists playing this. But psychologists, philosophers, everybody got into the game. And they couldn't beat tit for tat. And so he wrote a book about this. And he said, I don't know what happened, but somehow cooperation emerged out of selfishness. Could, couldn't be tit for tat in one-on-one -on -one or cumulatively? Oh, cumulatively. So, yeah. so, so the, uh, my score. Individual strategies could be. Is that correct? Individual strategies Individual could, be, could be better. Could be Absolutely. But summing over the entire yes. tournament. The, yeah. Exactly. The average strategy that was the best was yeah, tit for tat. That's important to note. Yeah, it was not single on one, one on one. Right. So, so, it, and, and there were programs that were close to tit for tat. And then he tried to characterize what are the properties of these programs. And the properties he found was they were nice in the sense that they always start to, by cooperating. And they never defect first. If you keep cooperating, I will keep cooperating. They were, they were retaliatory. So if you, if you defect, I will punish you right away. That was the second. They were forgiving. So if you start cooperating again, I will start cooperating again. And they were clear. So it was predictive. They, they were predictable. You could predict what they will do based on, you know, it, it was not inconsistent. Okay, I guess one requirement was that all of the opponent programs differ from each other. If they're all exactly identical and they're all completely adversarial, they would always win. Yeah, I guess so. But no, then, then tit for tat would have the same score as oh, anybody else because oh, they lose, would, you lose the first game. You lose the first game, yeah. So, you end up in the so people game. were trying to beat each other, which is why you have to be nice wow. once in a while because otherwise you'll never get that three; you'll only get the one. With with most of the, if everybody's retaliatory, then you will kind of be. But there is that one perverse case of all of your. Opponents. Absolutely, but it never happened. So it never happened. So, you know, if in a single encounter, all D always beats the for time. All what? Yeah. D, yeah, that's just the fact. Yeah. In a single encounter. Yeah, in a single encounter. But here you're playing longer. Because of the, the loss of the first round. Yes. Right. Well, you know, as Rappaport pointed out at the time, there's a, like a tautology involved with, you know, your utilities being defined as rational because you've assigned uh, premium values to individual selfishness as a word, but that's a subjective choice. Yeah. So what happens if you assign different utility values? Oh, you mean if the numbers in my matrix were different? Yeah, I mean, why do we decide that uh, ratting the other person out gives a higher utility value than cooperating? You know, that biases it from the beginning. Sure. Yes, but but so so this is only prisoner's dilemma if you are within the constraints of of what I what I told you. It's not prisoner's dilemma anymore. But it's not necessarily rational. Either. I I just want to say that okay, so we can argue. But I think I think what is what I want to get across is that these these strategies which seem to be scoring better than the others can be described in teleological terms, if you wish, uh, in in some way that actually we are tr taught to be to be aspiring to as children. And so this is exactly the emergence of cooperative behavior comes about through the need to win. Or at least on average.
And he's actually, that's his interpretation. If you read his book, he said, this is what I learned from this exercise that I did. And I think that's pretty good. Okay, so so let me let me go through a, a set of exercises. Yeah. Again, I thought sure. you mentioned this new recent paper by Will Press and Freeman Dyson. Yeah. They talk about this iterative prisoner dilemma. Right. They actually show that the answer is you can turn it into an ultimatum game. Okay. I haven't read this paper. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know enough about it. Uh, so they actually prove it that in an iterative prisoner dilemma game, you can show that the, you can convert it to an ultimatum game strategy in the end. But so basically, ultimatum game is that you don't reciprocate, right? You only get one chance. But that's sort of the answer which comes out. Which is what? Which is that? That, the that an iterated prisoner dilemma game can be converted into a, an, an ultimatum game if the players are thinking, <laughs> which is what you are interested in, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll okay. I have a different question about the, the research on prisoner's dilemma, which is if you start with uh, an arbitrary, the, the space of all possible strategies, and you do a simple evolutionary algorithm on the space of all possible strategies, do you evolve prisoner a tit for tat? And how long does it take? I mean, that's a very easy simulation to run, so I'm sure somebody's done it, but I don't know what the answer is. Well, so people have done it. If you, if you uh, restrict your strategy space to the memory one, so basically, your phenotype is given by four probabilities, which are the probabilities right. to cooperate given, given the, past, the four yeah. previous the right. previous four possible outcomes in the previous round. So you have right. a four-dimensional strategy space. But you could do it with an arbitrary depth, and it just gives yeah. you a contingency. No, I know you can, but I, I just know the results from that particular thing. And their tip to tap is not the is not the evolutionary outcome. And not. it depends, of course, it's then not. also on the rate of mutation. Yeah, they usually, the so, so what they it's usually continuous, do is, right? Yes, and close that, by. Right, so that's a problem. Sometimes you can't get to the optimal strategy because yeah. you're in the low. Yeah, they, I think the result is that it, it kind of moves around. Mm -hmm. um, so they, this is actually work by Martin Novak, and, and uh, they, they show, for example, the, you know, the stationary distribution, mm -hmm. which, so well, you know, one strategy that has quite a high density, the probability density is a uh, generous tip for that, which is actually in your in your properties is the it's not as retaliatory as tit for tat. So you so wait for some number of it has a probability of still so moderating. <laughs> well it's called generous tit for tat because it's based on probabilities. Okay. Well there's so always this problem that once you get any non zero entry it's hard to get rid of it. And this is a generic problem in This is a generic problem in in, 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 in genetic algorithms and evolutionary algorithms, computational algorithms, that once you have a table of some behavior which has a non-zero entry, it's very hard to get that entry to go to zero. And so, yeah, but so you're never going to get a pure tit. It's hard to get a pure tit for tat. Oh yeah. Because to get the to get the favorable response after a defection is hard because you have to force the the, the cooperation. To zero. No, that's, that's totally a hard true. Thing I to mean, do. you would never get a pure tit for that, but you would get something that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that would just put put probabilities on these yeah. features slightly, yeah. and it wouldn't change the. You still would have to be cooperative at some level. But, but if you allow an arbitrary depth, it would be very interesting to see whether that is 
is yeah. useful or not. You know, that paper that was mentioned by Dyson, I think they argue that memory one strategy is, is in some sense that. general. Yeah. I would expect it here, but I just, it's just, uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure what the, the exact assumption is to make it general, but they argue that it's enough to consider memory one strategies for, for some large class of, I think, well, basically it's if you iterate infinite, if the iteration goes infinite numbers of times or something, I would say. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's an infinite limit. Iteration isn't sort of key. Anyway, they made some argument that this is actually a general case of memory one. Memory one. Okay, so let me give another example where complexity increases quickly as you put in new players with different strategies. So here's something that John Maynard Smith described, and G.R. Price described in 73, which is the Dove-Hawk game. So let's imagine you have a resource which is worth some 50 points. Uh, when the hawks fight, they have an injury cost. They hurt each other, and let's say the injury cost is 100. Um, so when when the hawks when a hawk meets a hawk, they fight and they get the resource, but they share the injury, so they end up with a negative cost uh, to, to themselves. When the hawk fights a dove, he wins everything, and or she wins everything, and you get a 50. And the dove fights the hawk, uh, always the hawk wins. And when the doves fight each other, then they only posture and waste time. And there's a cost of wasted time, which is 20, and then they share the resource. So they get, so they, imagine this is the matrix. So what is the stable strategy? There is no pure strategy which is stable in this case. Uh, you proved it yesterday, so I don't have to go through the proof. But there is a stable strategy which is evolutionarily stable. Uh, if you're a if you're a hawk, then you should be a hawk seven times out of twelve. Otherwise, you should behave like a dove, and that gives you a better outcome than anything else. So, and you can analyze this in a simple way. Uh, okay, so pure strategies are unfortunately, as we were saying before, are unstable. If you are if you have only all doves, then they are unstable to invasion by hawks, and if you are only all hawks, then you are unstable to invasion. By doves, this is how far we went yesterday. But now imagine that there are bullies. I introduced another level of complexity where there's a bully. So the bully strategy is that you fight if the opponent does not fight back, or you run else you run away. So in, the bullies will dominate doves. Right? And doves will die out. And you can prove this if you you can simulate this and you can prove this, or you can just prove it analytically. But now the next level is you could you could be a retaliator. A retaliator is it behaves like a dove. <coughs> However, if persistently attacked, then you will fight fight back with all your strength. And and now this is the this is the, the matrix. The of persistence? Persistence uh, attack? If if attacked uh, if attacked by a hawk then it will retaliate. But if attacked by a bully, which it knows will not attack it back, then it will attack. So it's kind of in between. It senses what you're doing. It senses who you are and will attack you if you're not a hawk. So you're allowed to transmit memory from one yes. person to the next. Yeah, so imagine you make it more complex. Yes. So you have observed that people uh, uh, you have observed this individual uh, in the past? away from a hawk in the past. Right. Then you will retaliate. Yes. It, it, it means also that the, 
Yes, should be able to identify the bully and so it has to have seen the bully with the dove and seen so, so it, it should know which one is a bully, which one is a hawk and which one is a dove and then act accordingly. Otherwise you wouldn't know what the matrix was. If, if, if uh, these are uh, strategies, yeah? so the, we can imagine that we are the players, uh, we are all the same but uh, we have a set of strategies, so how do you know that uh, I am a bully or a dove? It means that you sh should keep the memory. Uh, that, uh, so I'm not. You should keep the memory. Just, uh, they all have a label here. So then the players are not the same. Why are they not the same? Uh, when you had a hawk and a dove, you had a label on a hawk and a label on a dove. The, the, and, and they still behave the same way. So it's the same thing. You have a label that says, I'm a retaliator. This is what I'm going to do. And and if you have a certain fraction of them, then they will they will either. But this is still a one round fight. This is still a one round. You fight. just have information. Out you have information on who the opponent is, and you know they, how they are going to behave. Otherwise, there's no analysis, no way to analyze this. You could learn this. So if you didn't know this, then if you played many many games, you would learn this, as, as Boris was saying. Saying, but it's as if you had a label in the first place. No, no, but you still have to be labeled as an individual. Like so. I should be able to associate your past. Uh, you know, I need to accumulate uh, my information in the past, so I have to know that I'm observing the same play. Yeah. So players right. cannot change strategy over time. That's one thing. Or, right. I need uh, some label. Like if I'm looking at the call, I, I, I don't exactly understand. But if you have, so if I you, don't know that I'm observing the same. If you have the time the history of the games, Boris. If you have a time history of the games, you can infer the label. That's what we are saying. Either you have the label right. stuck on you when you start the game, you play or you once, or you have memory. Right, right. Yeah. Why would I ever choose the dove strategy in this matrix? Like it's strictly worse than the bully. Yeah. So you would, the doves will die out on this. That's exactly what I'm saying. The doves will die out. We started out with hawks and doves, and so I have to keep the doves, but they will die out. Okay. So so of course, um, so the retaliator is actually a evolutionarily stable strategy. And, and uh, doves plus retaliators, turns out doves can survive if the doves are less than 30%. Um, and then, of course, there is the, the next level, which is the bourgeois strategy. So the bourgeois, now you have territory. So bourgeois is a hawk in its own territory, but a dove in somebody else's territory. And so it gets half the dove and the hawk's pair. So now you have to have, you have to have some kind of distribution. Like what's the likelihood you will meet a hawk or a dove? Right? And if you are a bourgeois, then 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 it matters what the probability of meeting a, a dove or a hawk is. So is there some way to be obviously uh, headed in the direction of generalizing and right. more complex strategies? So is there some uh, a little bit more vigorous way of considering a larger space there is. So, gains? Absolutely. So, so the, yeah. So people have taken this to the next level and said, suppose you have a continuum of strategies and you play them with some probability, which strategies will win? And it depends on the payoff matrix to a large extent. But aren't these uh, strategies? Well, they look like they're evolving towards tit for tat, more or less. I don't know. I haven't run these through. I mean, they're becoming more similar to tit for tat as you go down the list. Probably. But that's not an iterated game. No. This is but except that you have a similarity in it. You get instead of getting information through memory, you're getting information through having a label on the forehead. But these aren't strategies. These are payoff matrices. These are payoff matrices. 
So, and so what wins will depend on the payoff matrix. Okay. okay, so then there are lots of other kinds of games and and one can analyze them all and people have analyzed a lot of them. But I just wanted to present this as an example that, that game theory actually can be used in in, in some contexts to, to conceptualize complicated situations and break them down in ways that might be interesting to physicists. I would have thought that Boris would actually accept that. No, I'm, uh, I'm completely uh, game for it. <laughs> uh, it. It's just not that it would be sort of easier for me to uh, comprehend this if you say that uh, we're analyzing uh, a Cold War strategy. Very good. So I want to suggest. So, so it, here's here's a nice book. I don't know if you. This is the book that I would recommend strongly for game theory, where he analyzes precisely what you said. Right. Or, 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 or the, right. But we will basically start by defining what the game is, how many players there are. Uh, do okay. these players have territories? Do they uh, play the game for a long time? Are they going to play it once? Sure. Uh, you want to what is the that. persistence uh, time of uh, the strategy and, and so on? Right? Um, I agree. Okay. And people do right? that. People do that. Right. And the evolutionary context, again, is a different context. You know, one so needs to start with some notion of roughly what the ecology is. And I, I'm not saying that one has to be stuck from quarks there, right? Mm -hmm. So we're so perfectly happy with some phenomenological model, but 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 let's start with some phenomenon that we start building I phenomenology mean. and then mathematical description of. When uh, when it sort of looks like okay, so here's the game and uh, let's, let's play uh, the game. this is the solution. Let's find the problem that I we have solved. No, I'm not, I'm not well, meaning no. to imply that game theory yeah. should be applied in every context and that game theory somehow. Yeah. So, so the example that we saw yesterday where game theory was applied deliberately because the problem was actually created to make the game theory solution look interesting. <laughs> and what you're saying is that you should first decide what is the, what is the question and then see so if game theory applies. And that's true. Well, well, I, I would like to comment on that a little bit because it just, I mean, there is a difference between how theory is used in physics and how it is used mm -hmm. in population biology. Yeah. You, may, you may have noticed. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, in, in, so for example, with the Hawk-Dove game, they, you know, there, the biological question was, okay, why, does, why don't animals always escalate? So that's a very kind of general course question. Yeah. It's not a specific, Population where they knew, okay, 30% of the animals yeah. escalate and 70 don't, or something yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. So they just had this kind of general observation that animals often start to fight a little bit and then they then back they, off. Yeah. And so they, they just wondered, okay, it's, it is in a sense a cheating question. You know, why doesn't one just whack the other one over the head all the time? Mm -hmm. And so this is a it's not a very specific question, but it's kind of a general question. So they just said, okay, let, let, and that was Maynard Smith's big idea, right? On contribution. Somebody said, okay, we can formalize this conceptually in a simple game, and if we find that you know the hawks don't win all the time, at least we have some conceptual idea why that might be the case. So this is not a specific 
model for a specific population, but it's a conceptual model for a, yeah. a general question. It's the same thing, say, with the prisoner's dilemma in a, very, in a nutshell is, you know, you have this prisoner's dilemma, cooperation never evolves, so you take this game and you say, what do I have to change in this game so that we do see cooperation? You know, do we have to make an iterated game or a spatial game or something? Yeah. And again, this is not applied to a specific population most of the time anyway. But it's just some sort of coarse general So there it was question. following the logic that Boris was mentioning, where the problem came before the solution before the method. So they invented the method to explain something which was... Yeah, but it's, but it's not, I mean, that's at least my sense how it is done, more likely to be done in physics, where you, you know, you try to model like something much more precisely in, in a sense. I don't know whether that's true or whatever. But anyway, so that's the kind well, of... Uh, let me make a comment. Uh, I think, I, I think these, there are important differences, but in physics, uh, if you have a general idea which seems to hold most of the time, then you really want to find exceptions where it doesn't seem to apply because those will disprove your general hypothesis. And you're always looking to disprove things rather than to prove things, right? Because you want to falsify hypotheses. And uh, so... Well, then string theory wouldn't exist. <laughs> well, there are some, you know, corners of physics where this is a little laxer, right? Uh, but uh, in, in the in applications to biology, then, I would say, okay, uh, this is a great general idea. Where does it fail? You know, what specific systems does, uh, you know, Hamilton's rule, or whatever idea you're, you want to test, these ideas of John Maynard Smith, where, where do they seem not to apply at all? And then you have to look in depth at that situation Right. I mean, that's what a. I just want to. So, so would happen in physics, I think. So I, I. So these are the books that I got everything out of. None of this is, of course, mine. And some of these books are, I, 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 I like a lot. I particularly like this one because I talk a lot with Bob Trivers, who is at, at Rutgers, and he, uh, he, he spent his whole life on social evolution, the evolution of paternal commitment, and how much you know. Why do males and females behave as they do? And, and what does that have to do with cheating? You know, why, why do males cheat? Or why do, do humans cheat? Because cheating needs two people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. It's, it, this is the, the newest book on, on the list. And, and these, of course, are more on the teleological sense, which most people here did not like. But they're still worthy. This, this one is excellent. This is the book which he wrote when he did his experiment. It describes the results and his conclusions. It's really worth reading. And uh, in fact, if you ask um, Richard Dawkins, he's said this repeatedly in lectures, that he he was very, uh, he would have withdrawn this book had he known the reaction he would have he got when he wrote it. This was his first book, because it made him famous and infamous at the same time. And he didn't really mean to say what he said in the book the way it sounded. Uh, and I, I guess, Everybody we reads can put these say. references up on the wiki, sure. of course, for people to look at. So that, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Yeah. Is it the point of using game theory and evolutionary biology to model it as a, an optimization problem? Yeah. Yeah. What What should you do next in a given context? Right. Right. And what I'm saying is, nature makes a conscious decision 
It's just a model of what it did. Well, that's the question, though. Does it optimize? I mean, there was a discussion at dinner last night about it. In my view, that is one of the big problems of a lot of approaches to evolutionary biology by evolutionary biologists is that any phenomenon in nature is assumed to be operating optimally because it's been subject to a process of evolution and it exists now. And I think that that's a fallacy. But evolutionary game theory does not assume a particular outcome or optimization. I'm just looking at the computer programs and just make basic assumptions on how the population to evolve. A lot of times they get the dynamics, not optimization. You get several strategies coexisting. It depends on the starting conditions. I think optimal is the wrong word. I think sufficient to survive. Well, no, no. So the original game theory, you know, was optimization. You were assuming that it would go to a certain point. But then with replicator equation, all of a sudden the computer simulations, you know, you can actually, you get these dynamics and everything. You've got to be very careful. And this is something physicists, I think, tend to screw up much more than biologists. Although God knows evolutionary biologists screw it up too. Which is that fitness is, in fact, a very well-defined quantity. And the fact that we don't know a priori what is going to make one fit or not fit in a particular context doesn't mean that you can't retrospectively calculate what the fitness was. And we want to use surrogates for fitness. And so then you say, this organism will optimize the efficiency of its ATP production. Because somehow you have an idea that this correlates with fitness. But in fact, usually it doesn't. Whenever you write down some kind of optimization function or constraint, you are doing evolutionary optimization rather than evolution. And you've eliminated 99.9999999% of all interesting things in evolution. I was aghast. There was this NACFI meeting a couple of years ago. And it talked about evolution. And they wrote down, well, the goal of evolution is to somehow match some predefined pattern. And the whole point about evolutionary processes is there is no predefined pattern. Where was that? This was in bed at Keck. Because the engineers have an idea that you know what you want. And therefore, the goal is to get to that thing. And physicists have a tendency to do that. Well, we'll write down some complex penalty function. And then we're going to do some kind of simulated annealing under that penalty function. But of course, if you can write down the penalty function in the first place, you prejudge the outcome of your result. Is that because of the second law of thermodynamics? Well, to some extent. The question, why do you evolve greater complexity? Is it some way morally good to evolve greater complexity? No. The reason you evolve greater complexity is you start with something very simple. And the only direction you could go is in the direction of more complexity. That's where there's room. If you're going to diffuse, you wind up going to more complexity. And the same thing. You start with a system which doesn't have any kind of cooperative behavior. And you diffuse, you will eventually have some cooperative behavior. Because you will put those non-zero entries into whatever your behavior matrix is. In fact, this is precisely how, in political debates, people try to move people to cooperate. Because you can say, here's your position now. Let me draw a matrix. And the most stable strategy is prisoner's dilemma. It's B. Both of you are doing the thing that will kill both of you. So what, what are you willing to give 
to change the matrix to move it to a mixed strategy. And, and that's another context in which game theory is. I, mean, I, 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 I totally agree let, with the. Let, with let, the let me make a comment. It's after 11:30. It's creeping toward noon. People who want to drift out should okay. let's take a pause and do that. I'm more than willing to.